This episode of Untold Killing contains graphic descriptions of violence and mature themes. Please listen with discretion. On the 12th and 13th of July, most of the women, children and elderly were deported from Srebrenica to Tuzla by the Bosnian Serb army. After some time, the trucks arrived in Tuzla. We were put in schools, in tents, in sports halls. I was in a sports hall, and then I went to see my brother who lived in Tuzla. He had been heavily wounded in 1993. There were 11 of us in his flat. We stayed there until 1996. For weeks, months, or even years afterwards, they waited in Tuzla for the men and boys who had been separated from them in Srebrenica, or who had marched through the forests. But only a small number of them had returned. I was hoping for about a month that my loved ones would arrive, because some people were arriving. But I lost that hope. I no longer feared for my life, but I was feeling huge grief and sadness. I was wondering why all of this had happened. For the survivors, this time in Tuzla was the beginning of years of uncertainty, faltering hope and grief. From Message Heard and Remembering Srebrenica, this is Untold Killing. I'm Alexandra Bilic. We were hoping that they were alive until their remains were found. And that's, I believe, the common trait for everybody from Srebrenica. We knew that the fact is, they are all murdered. But somewhere in the back of our heads, deep down our souls, we held to this hope that until we find their bones, they might be alive somewhere. I remember my grandmother every morning waking up and looking through the window, whispering something for about an hour. And it was her morning routine, as if she was waiting for her sons to come back, to appear on the street or something. Those days were painful, agonizing, sad, sleepless. We were waiting, hoping, but the hope disappeared. If you remember, Kadifa's husband had joined the death march on the 11th of July, and he hadn't come back. She needed to find out what had happened to him. I tried to find out through my brother. They had been together at the start of the column, but he said that once the Serbs tried hunting them down, that was the last time he saw him. Kadifa's brother made it back to Tuzla, but it was common that relatives got separated from each other during the march and wouldn't have any idea what happened to their brothers, fathers or sons. Hasan Hasanovic, the man who made it through the death march alive, was in the exact same position. As you heard in the last episode, his uncle, twin brother and father were all missing. 
The same was true for Nejad, who survived a mass execution after being captured during the march. His uncle was waiting to be executed in the same group of men as him, and he lost track of his father just as they were setting out on the march. They were all waiting, holding on to the tiniest slivers of hope that they had left, that the men would come back. For two months I walked the streets, waiting, that maybe my Samir would come from the forest, that maybe my brother Mustafa would come, that they would let me know that my Sayyid was alive, where he was taken. My husband, my brothers, my people. I visited all hospitals where the wounded were. I got zero information. For a while, perhaps a year or two, I hoped they were captive somewhere. For a long time, I kept size 46 shoes, high leather winter shoes, to give to my Samir when he comes from wherever, because he wore large shoes. I kept a silk dress shirt. My Sayyid dressed well. He carried himself elegantly in suits with a tie, because that was the nature of his work. He loved beautiful things, and I kept that silk shirt for a long time, but he never came to put it on. Towards the end of the summer and the start of autumn 1995, the war across Bosnia was finally coming to an end. Back in episode two, we heard Emir Sulugic, the director of the Srebrenica Memorial Centre, say that Republika Srpska's attack on Srebrenica in July was a sign of the war coming to an end. But now, in part because of the emerging testimonies of Srebrenica survivors and the Bosnian Serb army's continued aggression, the world was finally starting to get involved. Emir talked me through the end of the war. Well, I mean, the war ended up getting resolved after the Americans decided that it was, it was time to end it. What further intensified the process of international power stepping in was the Bosnian Serb army's bombing of a marketplace in Sarajevo at the end of August in 1995, which was still under siege three years after the war had started. The bombing killed 43 civilians and 75 were wounded. The UN was so entangled in the war by this point that they needed it to end swiftly. And in the US, there was a lot of pressure on Bill Clinton's administration to step in, especially because his foreign policy in Bosnia was a crucial part of his re-election strategy. And so there was a coalition of Western powers who decided to intervene in reaction to the massacre. And... What followed after that was a short, intensive airstrikes campaign by NATO that leveled the playing field. And the moment that the playing field was leveled, the Bosnian Serb army started losing. Emir also spoke about how this strategic use of airstrikes that helped end the war showed just how effective they could have been in preventing Republika Srpska from conquering Srebrenica and murdering thousands of Bosniaks. And at a certain point that autumn, after more fighting and military interventions from the United States, the conflict finally drew to a real close. That's how the hostilities ended. There was a ceasefire. And then there were a month-long negotiations in the U.S. airbase in Dayton, Ohio, that 
ended with the signature of, uh, of Dayton Peace Accords in Paris in December 1995. Just for someone who has no idea what the Dayton Agreement is, can you sort of describe it simply? Okay. The, the basic tenets of the Dayton Agreement are the following. The state of Bosnia and Herzegovina continues its legal existence under the name of Bosnia and Herzegovina. It is comprised of two entities, one of which is a highly centralized entity uh, with a high degree of autonomy that's called Republika Srpska, with Serb majority. The other is highly decentralized entity that's called the Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina, with Bosnia and Croat majority. The post-war politics were playing out on the world stage, but the Srebrenica survivors still just needed to know what happened to their missing family members. Then the information filtered through that nobody who had fled through the woods had survived. So there was immense pain and grief. People were fainting. They couldn't process that their loved ones were gone. As survivors like Kada and Kadifa started speaking up about what they had witnessed in Srebrenica, survivors like Hassan talking about the horrors of the death march, and survivors like Nejad giving first-hand accounts of systematic mass executions, the world could not stand idly by anymore. The Bosniak women from Srebrenica started organising and campaigning for the world's attention, for information and for justice. Both Kada and Kadifa were, and still are, part of this movement, called the Mothers of Srebrenica. In 1993, the UN established a criminal tribunal called the ICTY, or the International Criminal Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia. It was essentially a special court set up specifically to deal with war crimes that took place during the wars in Yugoslavia. And after reports of the mass killings in Srebrenica started spreading, and were confirmed as credible, the ICTY planned for a delegation of forensic experts and prosecutors to investigate the fates of the thousands of missing Bosnian Muslims. In 1995, I volunteered for a charity called Physicians for Human Rights based in Boston to travel to parts of the world where there might be large amounts of people who have died or been killed and they had asked me if I would travel to Rwanda in 1995 following the genocide there. When I received a telephone call from PHR asking me if instead I would travel to Bosnia where through aerial photography the UN had noticed land that had been disturbed near the town of Srebrenica that they believed may contain human remains, uh, in fact, mass graves. My name is Robert McNeil. I'm a retired forensic technician and I live in Glasgow. In the summer of 1996, I travelled out to Bosnia to join the first team of international forensic specialists to try and establish where these people were buried. But my main role was to try and establish how they had died. Robert worked for 30 years as a pathology technician in Glasgow, carrying out autopsies on people who died of natural causes. But he also often worked on cases of homicide. He told me that before his first trip to Bosnia, he thought he was ready for it. If I'm honest with you, Alex, my first deployment to Bosnia, I went out there naive. 
and blind in the sense that uh, I had no idea what was facing me. After that four or five weeks deployment, I uh, returned home and I couldn't get Bosnia out of my mind. I tried to get back to my day job. But what struck me most of all, I guess, when I returned home was that no one seemed to be interested in the war in Bosnia and certainly not what I was involved with. So in 1996, Robert was part of a team of 20 international forensic experts who travelled to Bosnia. And at first, it really seemed as if they weren't prepared for the task ahead. When we arrived in Tuzla, we were taken to a temporary mortuary, which was in fact a former garment factory that had been almost completely destroyed by shelling. And in that place, we were given our first briefing by the senior investigator as to what likely had happened in Srebrenica and the surrounding areas. I should say that the temporary mortuary was really a pretty grim place and that became known locally as the body factory. The building itself was almost destroyed. There was no running water, not just for us, but for everyone around the area and electricity was sporadic. And unfortunately, it was a magnet for disease and a number of the team went down with diseases like dysentery and so on. One of the key goals of that first trip was to investigate and exhume the mass graves, which were the aftermath of the mass executions of Bosniaks from Srebrenica. I was taken to one of the first mass graves where, for the first time, I was able to look at what was facing us in terms of the challenges ahead with the sheer numbers of dead in that and many other graves. Robert actually kept a diary throughout his deployments to Bosnia. Here is his entry from the day he first witnessed a mass grave. The area beyond the periphery of the grave was surrounded by about a dozen heavily armed troops facing outward with their backs to the grave. As we drove forward, I could smell it before seeing it. I climbed out of the vehicle and walked over to the edge of the grave. I gasped and swallowed hard, taking in the attack on my visual and olfactory senses. It took me a few seconds to grasp what lay before me. At first I thought I was looking at a huge mud-filled hole in the ground interspersed with small bundles of filthy, discoloured and torn rags. The horror gradually became clearer as my eyes slowly adjusted to it. Jesus Christ, I said to myself, I'm looking into the bowels of hell. There were five anthropologists, each one working in silence on a recently partially exposed body, carefully separating the decomposing flesh from each of the contorted and commingled bodies from the mud, using what looked like garden trowels. The bodies once exposed were very fragile and too easily damaged, so great care had to be taken when handling them. I tried to imagine those days last July, just around a year ago, where the men and boys were blindfolded, had their hands tied behind their backs, then pushed onto buses, trucks, and taken to the killing fields to be executed. 
I wondered what on earth went through the minds of the victims as they stumbled towards the increasing sound of the gunfire ahead of them. Were they pleading with anyone willing to listen to them for their lives, praying to their God, calling out for their mothers or wives? Were they walking silently in the knowledge that their fate was already sealed? How in Christ's name could any human being have done this to another? Did they hate their victims so much that they lost all sense of humanity? In the grave, two anthropologists gently rolled a body recently freed from the hellish mud into a once-white body bag destined for the mortuary. I noticed that one victim's shit and mud-stained underpants were halfway down his thighs, revealing a hugely swollen and blackened scrotum. My shoulders dropped and I sighed at the indignity and inhumanity of it all. This process, from excavating the mass graves, through exhuming the bodies, to examining each of the victims' cause for death, was a long and arduous process. There were thousands of bodies, and each single one had to be meticulously examined by pathologists to gather evidence to be used in court against the perpetrators. They couldn't afford any mistakes. What were the actual findings of your investigations? What did you find out about how people were killed? There was physical evidence of injuries, both externally and internally. And I think one of the things that shocked me personally was on encountering victims who had been blindfolded. And worse than that, I felt, was that had their hands tied behind their backs, often with coat hanger wire, very thin wire. And what troubled us about that on a personal level was often how tight those bindings were. It must have been excruciatingly painful for the victim. So that plus... Obvious signs such as gunshot entry points and exit points, both on clothing and on the victims. Would you say your evidence confirmed that there had been mass executions? Many of the victims contained quite clear evidence because the, often the injuries were very similar. People had been shot, obviously, from behind through their heads. And so there was a consistency in much of the evidence. What you need to take into consideration is that there were a few survivors from Srebrenica and presumably from other executions whose witness statements, we didn't have access to them, but I know that the investigators did. And they would be able to match the evidence from the witnesses to the forensic evidence, which made it irrefutable, really. And so it was pretty clear that these were mass executions. But as Robert mentioned, exhuming and examining the bodies was only one part of their job. The other was to collect any evidence that would help identify the exhumed victims. During his deployment in Bosnia, Robert and the other volunteers decided to live with local families who volunteered to welcome the investigators and scientists into their homes. Robert was living with a mother and daughter both of them survivors, and the father was still missing. Robert remembers talking to the daughter, a miller, one day. She said to me, if you find my father, please don't tell my mother. 
and I thought, oh my goodness, her mother firmly believes that her father would return home. I noticed and uh, when we were invited, very kindly invited down to have a meal with them, that there was always an empty place set at the table and I didn't realise why at first, but I did later and that was because they were expecting the woman's husband and Amelia's father to return home one day. This is why identifying victims was so important. So many families were still waiting for their loved ones, believing until the very last moment that they were alive somewhere. And during the first few years of identification efforts, it was almost impossible to give survivors closure. We started with DNA technology at the end of 2001. Before 2001, in our center, we identified only 50 individuals using traditional method of identification. The quest to find and identify every last person killed in Srebrenica, that's after a short break. The number of recovered bodies of killed Bosniaks from Srebrenica kept rising and in large part thanks to a lot of campaigning and hard work on part of the Mothers of Srebrenica, a concerted international effort was made to try and identify thousands of sets of remains, and an organisation called the International Commission on Missing Persons, or in short, the ICMP, was formed. I am Ragana Vucetic. I work for International Commission on Missing Persons for the past 15 years as a senior forensic anthropologist. ICMP is an organization which was created in 1996 on the initiative of Bill Clinton in France on G7 summit to address the issue of missing persons as a result of armed conflicts, different disasters, trafficking, abusing, migrations, such similar things. Dragona, with her short jet black hair and matter-of-fact scientific demeanour, strikes you as exactly the sort of person who would work as a forensic anthropologist. I do anthropological examination of skeletal remains. That means uh, determination of biological profile of individual, determination of sex and age of individual, and determination of how many individuals basically we have in one case, in one uh, body bag. Sometimes... I also go to field to excavate. Like you heard just before the break, it was only in 2001 when DNA started to be used to ID the bodies. Before that, families were coming to our facility and tried to recognize our bodies or tried to recognize clothing or personal belongings or maybe some distinctive marks on the bones. And based on that information, we identify some cases. Also, in that time, we made uh, two books of clothing with photos of clothing and personal belongings. And families try to recognize some of those items. But very fast, we realized that uh, more families recognize the same items. So we had to find another solution. That's why we started with DNA-led method technique. That initial ID process that Dragona is talking about, Robert played a role in it as well. And it could often be very emotional. I think the very first job that I had was to deal with a shoe which unfortunately still had a foot inside it and when I removed the foot from the shoe I discovered 
a folded up piece of paper that the forensic people very carefully teased apart and that contained a photograph of the, we assume, the wife and children of the victim because all of their belongings were taken from them by the Serbs and I found it very touching the extent that some of the victims went to to try and retain something of their families. But because this process could be so unreliable, the ICMP turned to DNA testing instead. So once bodies were excavated from mass graves by the ICTY investigative team, Dragoner's forensic team was responsible for identifying them. So all skeleton material from the field coming to our facility, where we have chain of custody of receiving cases, then we wash remains, crime technician washes everything with water spray, then we separate clothing and personal items from the bones, we dry everything. In our facility works crime technician who takes photo of clothing, personal belongings, and he describes everything what is present, and we provide that information to prosecutor office. After bones are dry, we work anthropological examination of the case. Usually anthropologist prepares case on the table, that means that anthropologists lay out bones in anatomical position. If I have, for example, complete body, in that case, I would check left and right side from the same bones because from one person they have to be exactly the same like a mirror reflection. Also, anthropologist has to determine sex and age. And uh, determination sex is, uh, if we have pelvis, for example, it's 95% is accurate. In Srebrenica cases, mostly remains uh, belong to male individuals. So far, I think that we had uh, only 13 female individuals. As part of this process, Dragoner would also extract a DNA sample from the remains. This would then be compared with samples sent in by survivors who were searching for their relatives. And approximately after two or three months, we had to receive DNA report where we're going to see is that uh, sample successful? Do we have match with uh, DNA from the blood of family members? Or we have match with some another case? There are a lot of things specific to Srebrenica that have made this work very difficult. First, a lot of remains were recovered only years after the Bosniaks were killed. This meant that their bodies had decomposed, only leaving skeletal remains. Because of this, it was much more difficult to extract DNA than if any what's called soft tissue had been left. And the second reason why it's so difficult is that most of the bodies were not buried in one piece, and often these pieces were not buried together. Unfortunately, in Srebrenica, maybe in 10% of the cases, we find complete body at the field, we excavate complete body and we take one DNA sample. In the rest of uh, exhumed cases, unfortunately, we find only body parts or single elements. So it's necessarily more time to identify some of those cases, especially if we find remains of one individual in different mass graves, which we don't excavate at the same time. So in ideal situation, we can find out of identity in three months, but very often, unfortunately, we deal with one case for several years. 
For example, right now I have in autopsy room one case of one person which we found in two different mass graves in three different locations and those remains have been discovered 10 years ago and still this case is not complete, it's missing both arms and that case is not officially identified. So for this case we excavate 10 years ago one part of the individual, second part we excavated seven years ago, but unfortunately since that uh, condition of the bones was very bad, we had to take more DNA samples, so every time when we take additional sample, process of identification is postponed for another three or, or four months. As it turned out, not only did the Bosnian Serbs bury the executed Bosniaks remains in mass graves, Robert's team also started uncovering secondary mass graves. It was something the Bosnian Serbs did to cover up their tracks. In 1996, there was rumours, only rumours, that they were discovering graves that were empty. They would maybe perhaps leave some bodies there, but those would often be soldiers, Bosnian government soldiers to try and pretend that this was a battle and that a few soldiers were killed. So that was the rumours. By 1997, it was becoming clear that whilst we weren't able to operate, for example, in bad weather during the winter, etc., the primary graves were being re-entered. The bodies being taken out from those graves and using mechanical diggers, the bodies were then torn apart and then distributed to secondary graves, sometimes many miles away from their original grave site. And so, often survivors are faced with the choice of either burying just the few bones of their relatives that were found in the secondary grave, or waiting for years until more of their body is discovered. The excavation of mass graves and the investigation of the events of Srebrenica led to establishing an official count of Srebrenica victims. 8,372. The vast majority of these victims were men of a quote-unquote military age, even though many boys and old men were killed. But in fact, the oldest and youngest victims were both female. The oldest victim recovered was called Saha Izmirlic. She was 94 years old. And the youngest victim was a baby girl called Fatima Muhic, who was born on the 11th of July at the UN base in Potocari. Until now, we identify more than 80% of missing from Srebrenica. So official number of identified cases right now is uh, more than 6,750 individuals. That means that uh, around 1,000 individuals from Srebrenica are still missing. We didn't find them. Dragon has said that at the time of our interview, they had around 100 still unidentified sets of remains at the ICMP facility. They have either been unable to extract DNA out of the bones, or they haven't been able to match them to any survivors. Here is my producer, Jake, who is speaking to Dragoner. 
And you said that about 80% of the people that were missing in Srebrenica have been identified. So does that mean that there are still new mass graves that haven't been discovered to this day? Uh, probably there are still maybe one or two not discovered mass grave. Also, since that uh, around thousand people is still missing, so we all expect that uh, those remains have to be somewhere, or maybe in the secondary mass graves, or tertiary, or maybe on the surface remains. For example, I think that uh, we haven't uh, found the bigger mass grave definitely for in the past five or six years. In the past years, we find only surface remains from the forest, where usually people find those remains accidentally and contact police or missing person institute and somebody of ICMP goes there and uh, excavate. For example, for this year, we received six new cases and they are all from the forest because more than 1,000 people died in the forest when they tried to escape in, in July 1995. A lot of people died in the forest and nobody buried uh, those remains or they been killed in uh, ambushes. Today, after more than 20 years, it is clear that the ICMP's work is finally coming to an end. Before, uh, we had uh, hundreds and hundreds cases which we excavate every year and uh, hundreds and hundreds DNA samples which we extracted every year. It, it is really decreasing number or also of um, identified cases. In 2002, for example, when we started with DNA testing, we had over 500 official identifications. For example, last year in 2019, we had 20. Do you think it's realistic that the ICMP will be able to identify every single last missing person? I, I, yeah, I think that is not realistic because we won't probably find all those remains. But I hope that uh, we're going to continue work this uh, region, that we're going to have uh, international support for this process. The reality is that Dragona and the ICMP will continue to work until they have exhausted every possibility to identify the remains of all the victims from Srebrenica. ICMP started with this process, first of all, to help victims and uh, their families to, to make closure of this story, to, to move on, to try to live better, better life. Also, this process is very important from the point of justice, because uh, it is very important that we find out what happened in July 1995, that we find out who did that, that those perpetrators stay in jail. Verdicts are very, very important for complete this process. This is very important for the future of this country and this uh, region. We can't anymore put those dark things and bad things under carpet. We, all, all those things have to be on the light. And for the future of this country, for the future of those people, for the future of those thousand families who are waiting for our phone call every day, it is important to continue with this uh, job. The survivors rely on the work of the ICMP to find a sense of resolution. Without knowing with certainty what happened, it is almost impossible for them to move on. Here is Kada. Until the bones were found, there was terrible uncertainty. Where did they disappear? Who captured them? Who took them away? 
Who killed them? How did they die? In what way? Where are they hidden? But when a person is found, when their remains, mortal remains, are found, the body can be buried with dignity befitting a human. My husband was taken to Pilitsa and killed there. His body was in a mass grave in a village near Zvornik. The body of one of my brothers was found in between Srebrenica and Bratunac. It was established that he had been killed in Kravitsa, among the 1,313 people identified. Not all of his body parts were found. There were many bullet marks on his body. My husband's body also had many bullet marks. As for my son, I really don't know. They only found two bones no clothes, or anything else. They took the DNA three times from those bones to establish that it was my son. But we know he didn't disappear. He was killed and put in a mass grave. My husband had a nice silver pocket watch he liked to wear. He wore this when he was killed. The clock stopped ticking at 4.30. The time of my husband's death was marked. I remember spending nights thinking what would happen if my father was alive. Would he remember me? Would I recognize him in the street? How had he changed? If he died, was he killed in a forest? Was his body left just, you know, laying there out in the open for the animals to scatter it around? Was he tortured? My father was identified in 2012 and the remaining three uncles were identified, one of them a year before my father, two of them a year after my father. That's from my mother's side, my mother's four brothers. My father's brother an uncle from my father's side was also identified two or three years before my father. Then my father's another uh, brothers-in-law, another two uncles, had also been identified before my father. My mother's brother-in-law, my other uncle from my mother's side was also identified. So nowadays, thanks to God and all those people who diligently worked on identifying and are still working on identifying the remains and discovering the mass graves, I don't have any family members who have not been identified. When I spoke to Kadifa about the phone call letting her know that her husband's body was found, it became clear how conflicting that moment can be. It's an incredibly difficult, sad moment. But at least I knew he was buried. We knew where his place was. In 2003, I got a call from Tuzla that they had found his body in Pilitsa, near Zvornik. They captured him in the woods and took him to the sports hall in Pilitsa. There were about 500 executions there. They did the exhumations in 1997. Then I gave my DNA 
and by 2003, he was identified. Even to this day, there are still families who have no information about what happened to their loved ones. Every mother would wish to find at least a bone, but some don't even have that. I still had hope that he was alive somewhere, until I found out. In 2003, for the first time, mass burials of the victims started taking place. Every 11th of July, on the anniversary of the fall of Srebrenica, all of the identified remains from that year are laid to rest. The final resting place for the victims, after campaigning from the mothers of Srebrenica, was chosen to be at the former UN base at Potocari. Potocari is an important place for us. That's where they were separating us from our husbands and sons, in front of our very eyes and they sent them to death. We fought hard to make the cemetery be located at the place, where we were supposed to be under protection and where we saw our loved ones last. The cemetery that was built to honour and remember the victims is a vast green space with plenty of trees and winding paths. Rows and rows of pristinely white obelisk gravestones fill up the scenery and are a haunting reminder of the sheer scale of the tragedy that happened there in 1995. I was actually there on the 11th of July in 2013, and it was a very visceral experience. I met some incredible people who had come there to finally lay their loved ones to rest. It was a very bittersweet experience. On the one hand, people were having some semblance of closure and able to bury their, their relatives, but then on the other hand, the enormity of the awful events that had preceded this was weighing heavy on the whole place. So it was kind of hard to be there and speak to people. Some had come all the way from America to, you know, one amazing man I met had come from America to bury his father. And so it was very tough experience, but it was also full of hope in some ways as well. To this day, burials take place there every year in July. In 2020, there were only nine burials because, as we spoke about earlier, the number of newly identified bodies has been steadily decreasing. But a few years back, hundreds of victims would be buried in one day. Yasmin remembers his father's funeral as a day when, as well as laying his remains to rest, he learnt about one last tragic detail of his dad's story as they were at the gravesite praying. And the casket came to the open grave. I went into the grave to receive the casket and as, as they were giving over the casket of my father, I read a coded tablet on his casket with six different codes letters and numbers. When I buried him, I went to contact people from the identification center to ask them what those codes meant. And they said that those codes, those are the mass graves that the body in the casket was dug from, which meant that my father was dug 
from six different mass graves. The moment of that realization, I immediately envisioned how a human body is being dismembered by bulldozers five times at least. Um, how deep is the hatred towards people when it doesn't cease even after the person is dead? So you have to desecrate the body of a person. The burials of the survivors' murdered relatives are solemn occasions. But the war ending did not mean that all the divisions and tensions that caused the war in the first place have disappeared. Hassan, whose story of surviving the death march you heard in the last episode, buried his father the very first July that the funerals took place in 2003. Because it was such a momentous occasion, attended by thousands, everyone had to walk to the cemetery from Srebrenica, along the same road that the Bosniaks took when fleeing to the UN base exactly eight years before. As Hassan was walking, the road was lined with Bosnian Serb locals. And to say that they did not find the occasion as meaningful as the Bosnian Muslims would be an understatement. They were yelling out unbelievable insults, calling us animals, Turks, spitting on us, so they spat on me. Even some war criminals, some war criminals from the crowd who I recognize spat on me as I was going to bury my father that day with dignity. And you can only uh, assume how I felt as a human being. I felt like no human being. And I was really, really worried about myself and how I felt inside, you know. The, the, the amount of emotions inside of me were very worrying. And uh, I buried my father and um, two years later I buried my twin brother. I was preparing for five, six months for his burial. And I honestly thought that I will not survive his burial because we, we were twins, you know, we wore the same clothes, we were going to the same school, spent all the time together. And in my tradition, I had to put his bones in the grave and pretend, I repeat, pretend to be strong. You know, in our culture, men have to be strong, which is not good, you know. It is uh, mainly for women to display the weakness and to cry, and we are all human beings and we should show our emotions. And, um, I put his bones in the grave, my heart was pounding, you know, was racing, and, but, you know, I tried to be strong and um, I, I almost, you know, stayed in that grave with him. And uh, I think um, my father, my twin brother, my uncle would be proud of me. Returning back to Potichari isn't emotional just for the survivors. Everyone who has in any way worked to bring peace and justice to the victims and their families only fully grasps the meaning of their work when they come to see the cemetery. It is always a very difficult day and complete this process is very emotionally. And uh, of course that complete team is aware of everything what we did for, for the families. And uh, that day is a day of sadness. 
in 2016, I managed to gather 12 forensic experts, all of whom I had worked with over the years there. They were going out to Bosnia for the first time as civilians, if you like. We were taken to Potocari. And I know that for everyone who goes there, it's memorable and emotional experience. I was watching the forensic team's response when we walked over across the road and walked over to the cemetery, the beautiful cemetery in Potocari, and all of them, one after the other, started crying. And that, I think, was realisation for them for the first time, the enormity of the work that they had done. Closure is a complex process. The knowledge of what happened to their family members killed by the Bosnian Serb army was a huge step in that process for the survivors. And achieving justice was the next one. Whenever I see a perpetrator, and when I look him in the eyes, I ask myself thousands of questions that I have no answers to. Why? How? The fate of the women became a key factor in proving the destruction of the group. That's how genocide came to be in Srebrenica. Next week, on the final episode of the series, it's the quest for justice and for proving that what happened in Srebrenica was a genocide. Untold Killing is a co-production of Message Heard and Remembering Srebrenica. It's written, produced and edited by Jake Atayevich. Kate Williams is the producer for Remembering Srebrenica. Sandra Ferrari is the executive producer. Our consultant producer is Nadan Hajic. A huge thank you goes to Elmina Kulisic for consulting on the show and for working closely with the survivors. And of course, also to the women who provided English voices for Kada and Kadifer, Kim Sadiq and Abby Carter. The theme music is by Matt Huxley. If you'd like to find out more information about what happened in Srebrenica or read accounts of more survivors, go to srebrenica.org.uk forward slash podcast. And if you've enjoyed listening to Untold Killing so far, please leave us a rating and a review in your podcast app and tell others about the podcast. It will really help get the important story of Srebrenica to more listeners. My name is Alexandra Bilic. Untold Killing will be back for the final episode of this series next week on Thursday.